Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Institute. Thanks for those of you who are new. My name is Jason, and I am the co-minister here at Oceanside Sanctuary. We've been working through a series called The Art of Community all summer long. We're almost done with it. We're going to be wrapping it up in the next two weeks. And what we have done is really ask the question, what can we learn from Scripture about the patterns of what it means to live in a kind of spiritual community organized around the teachings, the work, the person of Jesus Christ. And we've identified three chunks of scripture that we visited this summer in this particular task of working through this series. The first was Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, we took a look at in June. We, we sort of pulled what we could out of Acts 2. And then in July, we visited Romans chapter 12. And notice some similarities between Romans chapter 12 and Acts chapter 2. And then this month, in August, for our final month on this series, We've been uh, leaning into 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Today I want to go ahead and pick it up again in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Last week we looked at verses 4 through 7, and we took a look at how Paul, in his letter to the Corinthian Christians, argued that we are united under the same spirit when we're a part of a spiritual community organized around Jesus. He said that we are essentially members of the same body. He's going to get into that same uh, argument today. But today we're going to notice that he takes, I think, uh, in some cases, surprising, uh, in every sense, incredibly important turn as he reveals how this kind of community uh, represents the gospel in our uh, larger context, our larger community. So before we do that, would you just pray with me before we jump into this passage together? God, we thank you again for this opportunity for us to come together as a church to lift our voices, to open our hearts and minds to uh, what your spirit is doing in our midst as a church. I pray that as we read these words that we would be softened in our posture toward you that we would become more receptive to the work that you are doing in each of us individually, and that we would also soften in our posture towards each other, that we become more open and receptive to how your spirit is drawing us closer together as a community, and empowering us to empower others. This is, in some ways, scary work in a lot of ways like that posture of vulnerability that you are calling us into feels even more costly today. So we ask that you give us church. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I'm going to pick it up in verse 20. So last time we took a look at verses 4 through 7. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit and pick it up here in verse 20. Paul says this, as it is, there are many members, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Now, I want to pause there for a moment, because in the previous several verses before this, Paul has visited this metaphor that we, as a spiritual community, are a lot like the human body. So he's building on the argument that we visited last week, that even though we're all different, even though we have different gifts and abilities, 
even though we come from different backgrounds, maybe different ethnicities, different communities, different socioeconomic statuses, that despite those differences, whatever good we express together is unified under one spirit, because all good things come from God. We talked about that last week. Paul is here teasing this argument out a little bit. Again, he's emphasizing that we are united. We're like a body. So even though there might be hands and legs and arms and feet and head and eyes and all of those diversities of abilities, we are united together as one by this spirit. And he says, to make an important point, one part of the body can't say to another, I don't need you. I don't need you. And he uses this argument to make an incredibly important point here in verse 23. He says, on the contrary, the members of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And those members of the body that we think less honorable, we clothe with greater honor. And our less respectable members are treated with greater respect. Whereas our more respectable members do not need this, but God has so arranged the body, giving the greater honor to the inferior member. Now, in doing this, Paul is saying two things. The first, of course, as we have already said, Paul is saying that we need each other. And this alone is a challenge for us in our culture, which is highly individualistic. We are fiercely independent. It's a part of the sort of American mythology that we are worthy human beings by our ability to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and make things work on our own. We have a kind of rugged individualism in the United States. And Paul is challenging those of us who have that posture by saying, you cannot say to another person in your spiritual community, I don't need you. You do need our differences are such that we are better together. I can't do everything on my own. You can't do everything on your own. We make up for each other's blind spots. We strengthen each other's area of weakness. We are communing. We desperately need each other to be healthy and whole and fulfilled in the design of what the community is supposed to be. That alone, I think, would be challenging. But Paul doesn't stop there. He says, on the contrary, the members of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And this, I think, is where we are truly challenged. Because we do not value weakness. In fact, we despise Weakness. In fact, our society thrives on the ability to identify those who are weak, those who are less important, those whose status is less than my own, and create a kind of pecking order in the culture of the world. This is very much what Paul and Jesus mean when they're talking about the world. They're talking about a tendency to organize ourselves around those who are strong, those who are dominant, those who are domineering. 
those who win by virtue, by virtue of their own might or their own strength. And so here, when Paul says, on the contrary, the members of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. He doesn't stop there. Those members that we think are less honorable, what do we do? We clothe them with honor. Those who are less respectable are treated with greater respect. I think if we took these words seriously, we would be confronted by our own tendency to judge those who are less respectable, those who are considered less honorable, those who are considered weak. What Paul is doing here is he is identifying in no uncertain terms the heart of the gospel in any community that follows the teachings of Jesus. This is exactly what Jesus did. When Jesus went out and he enlisted followers that he decided he would use to teach and to demonstrate the power of the kingdom of God, he did not choose those who were respectable or honorable. He chose those who were the least respectable to be among his followers. And not only that, he hung out with those who were least respectable. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus honors a tax collector by eating in his home, making one of the most reviled members of that society a person who was honored to be the host of a rabbi. Jesus demonstrates this commitment in everything he does. In fact, in Matthew 25, he goes so far as to say, if you aren't centering the needs of the least of these, then you have no part with me. He even says that when you do, you do serve the needs of the least of these, when you do center the concerns of those who are marginalized and oppressed, you are with me. The contemporary church in America is infatuated with the notion of being with Jesus. We have raised the idea of a relationship with Jesus to the level of idolatry. And what I mean by that is that we have turned it into a cottage ministry that elevates songs about loving Jesus and Preachers who preach about being intimate with Jesus to the point where they are profiteering off of those concepts. But here, Jesus teaches, particularly in Matthew 25, that if you want to be with him, if you want to be close to him, if you want to be intimate with him, then you want to be with those who are least respectful, least honored. You want to be close to Jesus, you need to be close to those who are weak. I love a quote that going around on Facebook or Twitter that says, Oh, you say you love the poor, tell me, what are their needs? Do you genuinely know those who Jesus counts to be closest to him? I don't. Not nearly enough. This should be a distinctive feature of any Jesus community. Any community that claims to follow the teachings of Jesus should honor those who receive no honor, should respect those who are 
consistently disrespected should empower those who are disempowered. This is close to the heart of the gospel. I have been, for better and for worse, a leader for most of my adult life in church settings, and occasionally I'm a fairly good leader. Most of the time I'm stumbling my way through it. But at one point in my 20s, of course, I was a youth pastor in a church in the Rocky Mountain West. We had a youth group, and one time Janelle and I and our youth group, in fact, the whole church was on a camping trip at Flaming Gorge National Park, which is the eastern edge of Utah. We're out there on the lake. Flaming Gorge is a big lake with majestic mountains like springing up on one side of it. And one night we're sitting around a campfire, a bunch of adults, a bunch of kids who were youth. And around that campfire were a bunch of teenagers. And I was feeling restless. I was probably 28 or 29 years old. I felt like we hadn't really done anything meaningful that day. And so that night, as we gazed into the campfire, and as the sun went down over a giant mountain on the other side of the lake, I looked around those at the campfire and I said, tomorrow, I'm going to climb that mountain. Who wants to go with me? I have no idea why I said that. (laughs) But one by one, a bunch of teenagers around the fire said, I'm going. I'm going. I'm going. And then one of those teenagers spoke up and said, I'm going. When that teenager spoke up and said, I'm going, everybody got hushed. Because the last person to say, I'm going, was Conrad. Conrad was a 17-year-old member of our youth group who nine months before this trip had been in a near-fatal head-on collision, spent several weeks in the hospital, spent months in rehab, And even at this moment, while he was on a camping trip with us, was barely able to walk straight and was literally relearning how to speak properly. His head had an angry red scar across the top of his skull where his head had literally cracked open. So when Conrad said, I'm going, we all freaked out. Because we all knew Conrad should not be climbing a mountain. But the worst part was is Conrad's mother was there sitting around the camp. And we were all terrified of Conrad's mother. <laughs> but I could see when, when Conrad said, I'm going, I could see that he needed it. That he needed the opportunity to show to himself and to others that he could still do something. So I looked at him and I said, okay. And then I looked at his mom and said, we'll take care of him. The next morning we got up, we piled into a ski boat. They drove us across the lake and they dropped us off at the bottom of a mountain that seemed to be 10 times bigger up close than it did when I was sitting across the lake the night before. And we asked the person driving the boat to come and pick us back up at the end of the day. He took off and we began our slow trek up that mountain. And we went slow. Because every step of the way, every single one of us was acutely aware that Conrad slipped and fell, that it could break him. 
And so we went up that mountain and took the better part of half the day to climb it. Half the time, some of us were behind him, like pushing him up over a ledge, and the rest of us were pulling him up from the other side. We went as slow as Conrad needed to go in order to make it. And somehow, by the grace of God, we made it to the top. And as we got to the top and walked through this huge crevice between two peaks, and got to the edge of it, you could see that the mountain looked like it had been sliced in half by a knife and just dropped straight down to the lake. It was an amazing view. And it was an amazing moment because Conrad was different because he'd made that trek. And as we made our way back down the mountain, there was, I think, a realization that it wasn't just Conrad who had changed, that day. The rest of us changed too. Because we were willing to take responsibility for each other. We were willing to take responsibility for him. That, I think, is as close a tangible example as I've ever experienced to what genuine solidarity looks like. And this is, I think, what Paul is trying to get at with the spiritual community of Christ. In verse 25, he continues that there may be no dissension within the body, but the members may have the same care for one another. Verse 26, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together with it. This is what solidarity is. This is reminiscent of what Paul says at the end of Romans chapter 12, which we visited last month. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Because when you are in genuine community with other people, you feel their joy, you feel their pain, and you experience it right alongside them. Now, some of you might know what it's like to be genuinely weak or disrespected or oppressed by a society that values strength and dominance and status above all else. But if you don't know what that's truly like, you can at least spend your privilege on behalf of those who That is the gospel. It is spending what you have on behalf of those who don't. It's the reason we see at the end of Acts chapter 2, the community leveraging their goods on behalf of the poor. At the, in Acts chapter 4, it says there were no more needy people among them because the community took that sense of common good so seriously. This is as close to the heart of the gospel, I think, as we get. I love the way James Cone puts this, the great black liberation theologian. He says, the gospel of Jesus is not a rational concept to be explained in a theory of salvation. Let me read that again. The gospel of Jesus is not a rational concept to be explained in a theory of salvation but a story about God's presence in Jesus's solidarity with the oppressed, which led to his death on the cross. 
What is redemptive is the faith that God snatches victory out of defeat, life out of death, and hope out of despair. This is why in this church we have taken the work of anti-racism so seriously. Because to say, for example, that black lives matter is a way of saying that in the world, as we know it, black lives don't actually matter. And so when we proclaim that black lives do matter, and when we spend our lives on behalf of that message, that black lives do matter, we are, in Cone's words, snatching victory out of defeat. We are attempting to bring life out of death. It's the reason we take seriously the affirming and empowering of LGBTQ people in this church. Because that is a group of people who have been hated and reviled, particularly by the church. So when we affirm them and we empower them, we are snatching, snatching victory out of defeat. It's why we take seriously the work of empowering women in leadership. We put women in leadership in this church at the board level, at the staff level, at the volunteer level, because they have been denied the opportunity to express their God-given gifts for most of our history. By putting them in those roles and affirming their gifts, we are snatching victory out of defeat. It's why we must do a better job in this church of taking seriously the work of providing accessibility to those who are physically disabled. Because when we exclude people on the basis of their physical abilities or disabilities, we are giving in to the lie that people's worth are based on their strength, their status, or their ability to be domineering. And that is the lie of this world. Jesus, by his example, by his teachings, and by his suffering and sacrifice on the cross, stands for the gospel that God, in the person of Jesus Christ, snatches victory out of defeat. Now, if some of these things rub you the wrong way, I get it. You were raised in church like I was. The sad truth is that church is often a place that has reaffirmed the lie that patriarchy is good, that homophobia is good, that white supremacy is good. And so when we conspicuously center those who are marginalized, it can make us deeply uncomfortable. Fortunately, in Christianity, we have a word for what you can do about that discomfort. That word is repent. Take a moment. Examine that discomfort. And then let it go. Repent of it. This is the gospel. 
to center those who have been marginalized, to empower those who have been disempowered, to honor those who have been dishonored, to respect those who have been disrespected. Church should be that shining place on a hill where those who have been stamped out and oppressed have an opportunity to be lifted up to express the full dignity of their creation. Amen? Amen. Would you sing with me one last time today? God, we thank you again for this opportunity to come before you to read these words from Scripture, to be challenged by the high calling that the gospel lures us into. We confess to you this morning that our hearts come alive when we hear these words, but that our flesh sometimes shrinks back. And the task seems too great. And so we recognize that while we all might be people who have experienced weakness or dishonor or disrespect or marginalization that many in our midst have suffered far more. So we pray, God, that you would unify us under this gospel of equality and inclusion and empowerment. Help us to spend our resources on behalf of those who are weak and marginalized and oppressed. Give us the courage to do that in Jesus' name. Thank you all for attending and watching online. That was beautiful. It was beautiful. Um, before we let everyone go, I do have some announcements. So um, the first is we are building the band. So um, every Wednesday at 6.30, um, we would like to have anyone interested to please come. Um, and we are looking for more musicians, singers, and audiovisual. Anything to help out would be wonderful. So if you are called to do this, please come Wednesday at 6.30. Next, thank you for answering the poll as to when we should have our, our uh, services. So um, we took the poll online, and it was overwhelmingly response uh, that we will start at 10 a.m., and that will be yeah, 10 a.m., um, and that will start September 4th. So mark your calendars, and it will, of course, be on our, our site as well. Um, and next, next, we have an adult retreat scheduled, the Black Canyon Spiritual Nature Retreat, which is October 6th through October 9th. And this is our first adult church-wide nature retreat. We will be camping, canoeing, and exploring forgiveness with a licensed therapist. There's a Zoom information session this Thursday at 6.30. Um, there are still some black spots open, so if you're interested, please join, and you can get the details on that. For all of these events and more, uh, you can RSVP and, and look at our OceansideSanctuary.org slash calendar or scan the QR codes that are around the building. 
And lastly, you might be wondering how to support our, our ministry. Oceanside Sanctuary is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we rely on the gifts and donations from people just like you. If you would like to support our mission, consider giving a gift today um, on our website at oceansidesanctuary.org/give. You can scan the QR, CR, QR code again uh, if you'd like to, and there's also offering boxes in the church. Um, before closing, I would like to kind of pray. I was I was kind of challenged by some of the things through the music as well as. Um, is the message. So I'd like to pray for all of us. Um, Lord, I pray as we go into this week that we will really be mindful of um, divine appointments that you would place in front of us, that we would have eyes to see them and ears to hear them, and that we would step into that place um, and be used by you for whatever that would be and whatever that would look like. So we thank you so much for hearing our prayers. Um, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. This concludes our service, and may the peace of God be with you. Thank you. See you next week.